one of you as we come together as God's people. Please stand and join us, and we will sing our praises to God together. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray.
Father, that is our prayer, that your praise would ever be on our lips. From the moment we wake to the moment we go to sleep, help us to be ever aware of your presence in our lives. Help us to love you and to praise you with everything that is within us. In the good times and the hard times, in the exciting times and the mundane times, may we ever sing your praises, that you are holy and you are worthy. Change us, Lord.
filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain, vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Zero, though. I was just checking the temperature a second ago. So we're making progress. Uh, Take a minute and uh, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. And uh, maybe the handshakes will warm up your fingers a little bit. I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes church can be kind of brutal. I've been a a pastor for 30-some years, and I've seen a lot of stuff. I've been in meetings where people were yelling at each other. Uh, I've seen people be so upset with other people that they won't talk to them. I read about a church that got into a big fight and over whether they should get rid of the pastor or not. Now, if you're going to fight about something, I guess that's probably a good thing to fight about. Uh, But they were fighting about this, and it got so violent that they had to call the police. Two people got stabbed. One person had a head injury from getting hit by a metal chair. I mean, this is serious arguments going on here. I have to say, I've not experienced that depth of violence in the church. But it does happen. But even when you don't experience that, the reality is... Despite what we want church to be and despite what we we have in our minds about this vision of the church, it's messy. And people don't always do the things we want them to do. And even in the church, stuff doesn't happen the way we think it should happen. And it's not the ideal atmosphere that we hope it will be. And the reason for that is, quite frankly, because you and I are a part of it. Right? And everybody else. Because we're all human beings, and human beings are fallible, and we're sinful, and we do things to hurt each other, and we mess up stuff with each other, and we create scenarios in which it is not, it doesn't look like Jesus. And that's been going on a long time. 
I'd say it's probably been going on as long as God's people have been God's people. Read the Old Testament. Read on into the New Testament, the book of Acts. And now something is going on at the church in Philippi. Paul doesn't tell us in this letter what's happening. But there is opposition, there's struggle, there's difficulty. And the essence of it is they don't get along with each other. And Paul writes in the second chapter to address that. And he begins it by saying, if if Jesus means anything to you, if I mean anything to you, then make my joy complete. Make me happy. Bring joy to my heart by getting along with each other. And here's how I want you to do that. And he says in the beginning in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take on interest, take an interest in others too. Good advice. I mean, you think about it, it's really psychology 101. If you want people to be nice to you, you be nice to them. If you want an atmosphere in which people get along with each other, treat each other the way you want to be treated. Stop being selfish. Stop being self-centered. Stop being arrogant. Stop doing all those things that irritate other people and create division and difficulties. I mean, it's really not that complicated. And this is actually a message that any good leader would say, this is what I want you guys to do. And and this is something that would be done and used any place. In a business, in a civic organization, in a home, anywhere you have people together, this advice about getting along with each other makes sense. It kind of reminds me of of the book that came out in the late 1980s. I suspect many of you have never heard of it, much less read it. But the book was called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It's kind of an interesting book. A little paperback. But these are the things that Robert Fulgham says. These are the points that he makes through this book. If we learn these things, you're good. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands and stick together and be aware of wonder. That's great advice. You can solve a lot of the world's problems by doing that. The problem is, both with that list and even more so with Paul's, is that it doesn't go far enough. If we stopped at verse 4 of Philippians 2, we would then just hear Paul saying, work harder, Try harder, do more. And as helpful as that might be, it's not going to create the atmosphere that Paul wants, not just for any business or organization, but for the church. It's a word of the church. So Paul says if we're going to be the church that we're supposed to be, it isn't so much these things of working harder, trying harder, doing more. It really comes down to, he says in verse 5, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have the attitude of Christ. That's what will change it. And when he talks about the have the mind of Christ or have the attitude of Christ, he's not saying uh, to just think like Christ. He's saying think like Christ so that you act like Christ. It's always what we're doing. I mean, that's really the call to the church, to be like Christ in our thinking, in our acting, in our relationship. And what does it look like to be like Christ? He goes on in verses 6 to 8 to describe it for us. He says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. What's he really saying? 
But the mind of Christ is humility and selflessness. The sense of self-emptying. This, this idea of, of not grasping to what is rightfully ours. But taking our hands off of it. I can't even begin to imagine the number of times Jesus was confronted with the temptation to grasp his godness. To say, you don't know who I am. I'm going to show you who I am. You can't treat me like that. You can't do that to me. You can't talk about me like that. And the reason why I am convinced that Jesus wrestles with that temptation is because we do. Right? I mean, how many times have you been in a meeting or with some friends or in a setting where the, you're thinking to yourself, I want to make sure everyone knows how much I know, how smart I am, how much I have to contribute, how valuable I am. I want to get my own way. Even if our intentions are the very best, we get in the way of ourselves. And it's so easy for us to start thinking selfishly and to grasp for what is ours. It's my right to have that. It's my right to do that. It's my right to get that. It's my right for you to see me that way. No wonder church has trouble. You think of a room full of people who are, who that's their mindset. Me, 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 me. All you're going to have left is a group of people fighting with each other. It is only when we take on the mindset of Christ, the persona of Christ, of selflessness and self-emptying and refusing to grasp what is ours that we become the church. Now, People have talked about this for centuries. One of the things that often comes up in this conversation is, well, this is for people who are hardcore Christians. In our lingo of our denomination, these are people who've been through sanctification. These are holy people. This is for a select group of people who are especially close to Jesus. This is what their life looks like. And the rest of us, we don't need to worry about it. I think that we've sold a false bill of goods to people. Because when I read the scriptures, I think this, what Paul's saying here, is the very definition of what it means to be a Christ follower. It's not just for special people. It's not just for people who have you know, a hardcore into Jesus. This is about everybody who is a Christ follower. It is what defines us as Christ followers. I mean, Paul's just saying what Jesus said. In the Gospels, in Matthew, is, one of, is just one of the places we can look. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says to his disciples, If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, then you're not worthy of being mine. And then you get to chapter 16, and he says, If anyone wants to follow me, anyone, then you... Give up your rights. You turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. He's not saying, if you want to be in that inner core, then do this. Or if you want to be special, do this. No, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like. And what it looks like is living our lives in such a way that they are on a trajectory to a cross. We live in such a way that the decisions we make and the way we treat each other and the way we think about ourselves and other people in the world, if we follow it to its natural conclusion, it's going to lead us to something like a cross. And if you're like me, I don't really want that to be the end of it. I'm reading this passage looking for loopholes. Surely there's a way out of this. Surely there's another there's another way to get to that. Surely it doesn't have to end in a cross. It doesn't have to end in me giving up myself, losing myself. 
dying to myself. Surely there's got to be another way. I want Jesus to say, look, that was for the Philippians. That was a special case. That's not for you guys. Don't worry about that. He doesn't. If you want to be my follower, this is what it looks like. If you want to walk the path with me, you need to know that my pathway is leading on a trajectory to the cross. And if you want to be one of my followers, that's the trajectory of your life too. I think most of the time when I read this passage, I've thought about it in terms of my relationship with God, purely vertical. I'm going to sacrifice for God. I'm going to surrender for God. I will give up things for God. I'll go somewhere in the world for God. I will, I will do this and do that and give up this and give up that for God. And while that's really important, that's not what Paul's writing about here. Paul's not writing about the verticality of our Christian life. He's writing about the horizontal nature of our Christian life. The real sacrifice And the real refusing to grasp what is ours is in how we relate to each other. It's being in a a setting where we refuse to say, wait a minute, that's my right. Because that's what Jesus does. I look at how Jesus must have been tempted Think about the last week of Jesus' life, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Here he is, God in flesh. Everything about his godness is his to take. He's the creator of all things. He is the Lord of all things. And he lets people arrest him and beat him and put nails in him and hang him to a cross. And at every step of the way, the temptation was to say, wait a minute, I'm going to exert my godness here. And he doesn't. And hanging on the cross, these hypocritical, evil religious leaders mock him. If you're really the son of God, show us that. Come on down. Let's see it. Oh, man, I I would have wanted to get down. Wouldn't you? Okay, wait a minute, that's enough, time out. I'm not taking any more of this. I'm going to show you who I am as God, and you're not going to like it. But he doesn't. He stays right there. It's not fair. It's not right. But it is the call of the gospel. It's the call of Christ on anyone who says, I want to follow you. And I think it may change the way we talk about what it means to be a Christian. Because we have often thought about being a Christian as I pray a prayer. And while that is not insignificant, that's not really the point. I saw someone this week had written about a close family member who had become a Christian. And I got this sense that maybe it was like the last of their family members that hadn't been a Christian. And they said, you know, they prayed a prayer and to receive Jesus, and now I can just rest easy. And I get that, and I rejoice with them about that, but I think even speaking of it in those terms gives the wrong impression, as if I prayed the prayer, so now I'm done. When in reality, praying the prayer is just sets us on the path of a journey of life that takes us to a cross. And being a Christian is not so much praying the prayer as it is being on the path. And embracing this call of Christ to follow him even to a cross. And I struggle with that. I don't want it to be that, but that's what he says. I think this is the way we were created to be. I think in the, in the Garden of Eden, this is what it looked like. This is how Adam and Eve were to each other. Because Genesis tells us that God created human beings in his image. 
And there are lots of discussions by scholars about what it means to be created in the image of God. What if God's image is in us? And I think this is one of those things. To be created in the image of God is to be created in such a way that we live like Jesus lives. Self-emptying, selfless, humble, risk-taking. That's who Jesus is. And I don't think Jesus was not that, came to earth, became that, and then went back to heaven and is no longer that. That doesn't seem right. It seems disingenuous at best. I think this is who Jesus is. This is, and, and, and Scripture says Jesus bears the image of God, the perfect image of God that we were created to bear, but we messed it up with sin. And so now he is bringing us back to that image. And I believe that when we get to heaven, we will once again bear this image of Christ fully, just as Christ does. I mean, we're not God. But we reflect this image of Christ like we were created to reflect. So when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what we're really praying is, Lord, everything about heaven, let it come on earth now and let it be in us. I think when we get to heaven, this is how we're going to relate to each other. Because the opposite doesn't really feel like heaven. Arrogance, selfishness, grasping, struggling for our rights. Maybe that's why, as Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, there are some people who don't want to go to heaven because heaven offers nothing that they want. And if we don't want this now, why would we think we would want it for all eternity? Now is the time. It is the image of God. And I think this is what the difference, this is the difference between what we see of Jesus in verses 6 to 8 and what we see of Jesus in verses 9 to 11, where it talks about him being exalted. I'm not sure it's exactly cause and effect as much as it is two different pictures of Jesus. And the first picture in verses 6 to 8 is Jesus living this existence in the midst of a world of evil that opposes him and fights him and is violent against him. And it ends up in a cross. And verses 9 to 11 is Jesus living this existence without that opposition. Free. But Jesus is Jesus. And the call on our lives is to surrender to Jesus. It feels like a burden. It feels like weight on us. It feels like some kind of sentence. But the truth is, it's the pathway to joy. And blessing. I find it fascinating that, that Paul drops this picture into the middle of a letter that is primarily encouraging the Philippians to be joyful. And in fact, in, later on in chapter 2, Paul writes, I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. You should rejoice and I will share your joy. Even if it means my life is on a trajectory to the cross, I will rejoice because I'm in Christ. Because I'm connected to Christ. Because I'm living the life of Christ. And that's the life of blessing and joy and grace and what we were created to experience. And instead of it being a burden and a drudgery, doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, it is the most courageous way to live. There's nobody more courageous who's ever lived than Jesus. It, it takes courage to be in the, in the midst of people and to not grab your rights. That's courage. But it's also the life of joy. Because it is opening ourselves up to let the Spirit of Christ Fill us and work in us and change us and transform us. And some way to come to the place of saying and feeling and sensing the joy of selflessness is to understand who God is, who Christ is in us. And when that begins to happen, 
we begin to be the church that we were created to be. A church that cares more for others than for ourselves. A church that's more interested in what other people are dealing with than perhaps what I'm dealing with. More interested in helping others find their faith than making sure that I get all the accolades that I want. That's the church. It's in relationships. Fred Craddock says, sometimes I think we think of surrendering our life to Christ as if we come, we bring him a thousand dollar bill and we lay it at his feet and say, there's all my life, it's yours. And he says, I have a feeling that what Jesus does, he picks up that bill, hands it back to us and says, go to the bank and exchange it for quarters. And you fill up your pockets with a thousand dollars worth of quarters and you spend your life giving away those quarters to people. How do we most Actively serve God by serving others. How, how most clearly is our faith in God reflected in how we treat others? And we go about the commonness of life and we hand out 50 cents here and a quarter there, maybe a dollar here. And we do it in the most common ways, things we don't even think that much about. We're just sitting in the committee meeting. We're just... We're just conversing with a little child. We're just going about our service to the church and to others. And we're not even thinking that much about, I'm doing this for God. But the Spirit of Christ comes through us. And we begin to see Christ in us. We become the church. You know, when we get to the season of Lent, we think a lot about the cross. No matter what tradition you may be a part of, the cross is really focal point of Lent, and it should be. But often we, when we think about the cross, we're thinking about what Jesus has done for us. And, and we need to do that. It's important. This week, this song is going through my mind. You know, uh, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. And that, that song's just been going through my mind all week. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. You became nothing, poured out to death. Many times I wonder at your saving grace and I'm in that place once again. And we need to give thanks for the cross. But in the midst of giving thanks, we hear the call of the cross on our lives. This call that challenges us to be Christ followers. Whose very existence is defined by living a life on a trajectory to the cross. I'm convinced it's the only way for us to be the church. It's the only way for us to know the joy of the Lord. It's the only way for us to really be followers of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the cross. Give us a new vision of what you call us to be through the cross. We're going to spend some time praying together this morning. And one of the things that I want to do during the season of Lent is spend a little bit of time in silence. We get so busy, and so much noise in our lives, so much stuff going on, we forget the value of silence. And so we're going to take just a few minutes, 30, 45 seconds of silence, after which we're going to pray together and if you would like to, uh, if you'd like to, as we pray together, if you want to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, I want to invite you to come now. We'll kneel at the altar, we'll have our moments of silence, and then we'll pray together.
Father, in this moment of silence, speak to us. Father, as we come to this moment of prayer, we come because we know that life can be a struggle for us and for others. So as we come to praise you and to honor you and to glorify you, we also come to acknowledge that we need you and ask for your grace in our lives. Father, it's because you are good and merciful that we offer these prayers. We pray, Father, for all who are grieving today and ask for your mercy upon them. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues and we pray especially for Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Buecher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson and Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth, and for Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler, and for others who may be on our minds today, and we ask for your healing grace upon them. Father, we thank you for the church and for the ministries of the church. We pray especially today for the nominating committee that's in the process of of helping us uh, find leaders for this coming year. We pray you would give wisdom and grace and sensitivity to this group of people that we would truly have your mind in this important process. We pray for the churches around us, and we pray for the Belfast Free Methodist Church and Pastor Mackmer, and ask that you would bless this congregation. Pour out your spirit upon them as they minister your grace and mercy and truth in the town of Belfast and beyond. May they sense your spirit helping them. And Father, we think of our world. Can't help but think this weekend of people who don't have adequate shelter in the midst of this terrible cold. Lord, we don't want to be like James who say, we pray for these people and send them on their way. Father, if there is something that we can do to assist people in need, open our eyes to that and give us willing hearts to help and to be your hands and feet to people who are in need. We pray for your protection. We pray for all of those who are involved in ministry, helping people in these kinds of needs. And we pray that you will bless them, and, but keep us sensitive as well. We pray for Don Little as he is ministering in North Africa. Pour out your spirit upon him in this intensive two-week mission to Christian workers that through his ministry, they would have a better sense of how to relate the gospel to those around them. And we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted and threatened and face very difficult circumstances. We are so grateful for the new translations that Wycliffe is is bringing about, but we also know that they are in very delicate circumstances among high levels of persecution. So we pray you protect the workers and protect the church that the word of God might be completed in their language so that they could share it in their language and it might see fruit beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you for the cross and the call of the cross. May we embrace this call and find the joy that you desire to give to each of us. 
We pray this in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a chance now to give back to God from all that he has lavished upon us and all of his blessings through our tithes and offerings. And we'll sing together as we do. Lift your head, we are made of
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.